was a way that people would get me to come speak, and this was not it. <laughs> this was an entirely different path to your door than I have ever taken before. No, it was it was great. I, lo I loved spending time with you when we met. I do want to correct the record on one thing. I am not a homeschooling parent. My wife is the homeschooling parent, and when I'm in town, I do my best to support her. Uh, but that was something that because of what I do, they asked me if I would speak at some practicums in the state of Georgia. I happen to have some time in the summer, and so as a way for me to give back to my community. Um, and so I want to say that to you because I'm here with you today because I see you as an extension of my community. I travel around the country and around the world, uh, and I, this is all I do. What you're about to see in some form or another is my job, as weird as that may be to believe. My sister always tells me that. She says, you have the strangest job. I said, it is, it is but it's a blessing to get to do what I do. I, my job is to equip people to talk about the most difficult things to talk about in the culture. And this particular one that we're going to talk about this morning that we've been discussing is the issue of abortion. It is my job to go out and to help people learn how to engage the culture, to engage the world around them in a way that will change people's minds. I'm passionate about what I get to do. Uh, a friend of mine is the, the executive director of the Pregnancy Center, which I'm on the board of directors for, where I actually got started in the pro-life movement was through our local pregnancy center. And she just asked me at our board meeting the other night, she said, do, do you still love it? Do you still love what you get to do? And I said, yes, when I'm on the road, when I'm in front of audiences, when I have the opportunity to talk to people, I love the calling that God has placed on my life. It is a joy, even though what I talk about is horrible. So let's talk, let's start in a scripture. We're going to start in a scripture, uh, James chapter 4, verse 17. It's a very short scripture. So if you have Bibles around, I've picked up one from the pew so that I'll be reading off the same book that you are. I'm going to talk a little bit about James. James 4.17 is where we're going to start, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it before we get there. James is a book in the Bible that people have had an interesting response to throughout Christian history. Uh, it, is, it is one that a lot of the great heroes of the faith actually dislike deeply and tried to have removed or not allowed into canon at some point or another. The reason is because there are many people that believe that James comes very close to preaching salvation by works, which it does not do. It in no way undermines the story of grace in the Bible, but what it does do is give us a very strong message that when you look at a person's life, the things that they do communicate what is going on inside of that person. That we can know something about them by the choices that they make in their life. It doesn't say that you're saved by the right decisions, but it does say that a constant pattern of the wrong decisions tells the world something about where your heart is. And that those who live and dwell within Christ will follow and pursue the things of Christ, and those who do not do so, no matter what they say, what they do tells us who and what they are. And that's a hard message. And it gets even harder because in, your, in this particular translation, if you get to 17, it says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. We're going to have to talk a little bit about what this means. Because it's not just saying if you do wrong things, you are going to be in trouble. It's beyond that. There's two types of sins we can discuss. One are sins of commission. Those are the things that you do that are offensive to God. The actions that you take, lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, these things, raping, they're offensive to God. And to do them, to take that action, is a wrong thing. And it's a sin. But this is a different kind of sin that they're talking about. In other translations or other ways you hear it, you'll hear it talked about different ways. Anyone who knows the good that they ought 
to do and doesn't do it sins. Any man, any person who knows the good that they should do and does not do it for him, it is sin. That there is a good that you ought to be pursuing and to fail to pursue that good, whatever else you do, it is sin. And we see this as a, as a consistent message throughout the Bible, as a matter of fact. Look at the book of Amos in, in chapter 5, verse 21. Amos is one of my favorite prophets because Amos wasn't whatever you would consider like a professional prophet. It wasn't what he did full time. Amos was a sheep breeder, a shepherd. And he was called by God to deliver a bad message to the people of Israel. And that message was, you have failed to do what you ought to have done. You have grown rich and comfortable and you have lived in opulence and wealth at the expense of the poor of Israel and they have suffered while you have lived this extravagant lifestyle and he says in 521 I abhor your offerings I detest your ceremonies I hate all of the religious expression of what you have done because of what you have failed to do it is nothing to me God's message then was, go ahead and have your religious ceremonies. I reject them. I hate them. I despise them because of the things that you're not doing for the poor. Because you live this lifestyle at their expense, at their injustice. God says this over, we see this constantly. We see in the story of the Good Samaritan, it comes up over and over again, this idea that no matter how important you think you are or how great the things that you're doing are, if there is a good that you ought to be doing and you're failing to do that, you are sinning. I want to bring this to you today because I am going to suggest to you, and this is one of the messages I preach all around this country when I get to go into churches, that to fail, oops, uh uh-oh, Engaging this culture on the issue of abortion and the value of human life, engaging the world that we live in with a message that life has value by virtue of what we are as human beings and not what we offer other people, standing up to a culture that continues to find death as an answer or a solution to problems is a good that we ought to do. And that when we fail to do so, no matter what else we do in this world, we sin. To be silent in this world is to sin before God, even if you spend all the rest of your days doing otherwise productive things. Now, I have to make a case for that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to both make my case for life, what you see the talk, and I'm going to help you, hopefully, in learning how to engage this. Because I wasn't always on this side of this issue. At one time in my life, I was a pro-choice atheist. All throughout college and in my early 20s, I was on the other side of this. And so that's one of the reasons I'm very passionate about what I do. Not because I just want to fight people, because I don't fight with people. I engage them with the hope of changing their mind. Because I want somebody to talk to them the way I wanted people to talk to me when I was wrong. It's a good to help somebody become right when they are wrong. It's a good thing to tell somebody that they are doing the wrong thing as long as you can push them in the right direction or point them where they ought to go. And so I'm hoping that I can be a part of doing some good for people that were like me. So, so how do I make that case? Well, first of all, let me make the case that it's a good that we ought to do. Because the question of whether or not abortion is a right or wrong comes down to how we answer one question. What are they? What is the unborn? If it's a good or bad thing, a moral or nothing at all, 
It depends on how we answer that question. For the sake of argument, let's say that the case I'm going to lay out here in a moment is correct. Let's say that the unborn are fully of human value, that they are just like us in morally important ways, and we have basic duty and obligations to unborn human beings, not the least of which is just to not kill them. Let's say that that is the, 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 the truth. Then we live in a world, if that's the truth, where the intentional destruction of human life, which that's what abortion is if they have value, is happening on a scale that the world has never seen before. The intentional destruction of human life right now in the world that you're living, if they're human, if they have value, is a scale that the world has never experienced throughout all of human history. In the United States since 1973 and Roe v. Wade, we're at about 60 million in the United States alone. In China, there's about 17 million a year as a result of the one-child policy in China. As of 2012, not as of today, but as of 2012, in China alone, there have been more than 336 million abortions since the one-child policy have been acted. If you take just China and the United States since 1973, that's a number that's greater than the entire population of the United States and twice that of the entire continent of Australia combined. If they matter, if they have value, we're talking about whole nations of human life being wiped from the face of the earth. Now it's being done quietly, privately, medically, even cleanly, different than what was dealt with in centuries past when infanticide was seen on the streets and where they had to deal with the humiliation of finding those babies out there for everybody to see. Nowadays it's done in a way where they're called medical waste and disposed of where nobody has to see them. But if they have value, this is, these are numbers that are incomprehensible. We're talking about 40 million a year worldwide. Something on the order of a billion over the last 30 years. That is far greater than all of the wars of the last century. Far surpasses them. If they have value, if they matter, you have never seen anything like what we're in the middle of right now. So we have a responsibility to determine how we're going to answer that question. What are they? So when you engage, I'm going to give you this strategy. One, we answer that question. Two, I argue using science and philosophy. And three, I put a premium on arguing well. Because at the end of the day, I'm trying to win people with good arguments, not try to beat them down with the truth. So the question of what are they? Why is this central? A friend of mine, Greg Kokel, who runs an organization called Stand to Reason, he was out to lunch with my boss several years ago, and he said, we've got to figure out a way, an analogy, to help people to understand why this question is so important to these issues. And he said, so, I think I've got it. He says, imagine you're at your sink and you're washing dishes. And all of a sudden, and I use my youngest daughter for this, my youngest daughter walks in the room behind me. I'm focused here, I'm washing dishes, and she asked me this question. Daddy, can I kill this? Can I kill this? It seems like a rather grim question from a nine-year-old, but if you have nine-year-olds in your house, you know weird things happen all the time. Uh, so my nine-year-old daughter asks this question. Now, what do I need to find out before I answer her? What is it? That's vitally important information, right? Now, I'm going to say something that recently I actually got accosted by a woman after a talk who came up to me and said, I think what you just said threatens your position as a pro-lifer and makes you seem inconsistent. And I told her, absolutely not. I disagree with you. If it's a cockroach, kill it. I can care less. And she said, no, that's one of God's creatures. That's wrong. And it's like, I, I don't deny that's one of God's creatures, but it's a disgusting, filthy creature in my kitchen, and it needs to die and get it out of my house. And I don't back off from that one bit. I don't care if, you know, in God's world and his economy, all the creatures are beautiful and let them roam free. If they come into my house, they take their life into their own hands. And so if my nine-year-old daughter has that thing, 
kill it and get it out of the house. If it's the neighbor's cat or dog, probably not. That would be creepy and weird. Uh, I have this dog in my neighborhood. This lady got very upset at me about saying this as well. I love animals, by the way. I love them. If you see my screensaver, it's a picture of a lion. It used to be a picture of an elephant. I'm an animal guy, and I love dogs. I'm a dog guy. I'm going to pick up my new puppy a week from today. I'm thrilled about this. I have one at home who's older. We've had for 13 years. Uh, so I love and adore dogs. There is a dog in my neighborhood named Dixie that I hate. And, and uh, I hate Dixie with like a grown-up hate. It's not some small thing. But the reason is because I walk with my son at night and we talk about things and there's a privacy fence where Dixie lives and Dixie has an unnatural, almost demonic ability to find the one second where I have finally relaxed and think that she's not going to do it to run up to the fence and go, and it just freaks me out every single time. And her owner thinks it's hysterical. He's in the yard. He's like, come back, Dixie. Jerk. Uh, so, but even though I hate Dixie, I would still never tell my daughter it's okay to kill a dog because that would be really weird and unnatural. Uh, if it's her older sister, absolutely not. Let her go. What it is determines the right or wrong of it. And until we've answered that question, we can't determine whether or not it's okay. The problem is in our culture, we almost never ask that question about the unborn. We assume they're the kind of thing we're allowed to kill without ever addressing the issue. About 99% of the people that I talk to have done this. This is what we call an argument presupposing something. They have already assumed something about what the, the questions they have to answer and it pollutes everything they say. Now, the first thing that we need to do is learn to poke holes in the way other people see things before we make our case. One of the things that I think we are terrible about in this culture and learning to engage other people is that we're so eager to tell other people what we think that we never ask them questions so that we can help them and, and help us understand what their view is. And so I want to ask you now to reverse that trend in this culture. I want you to do your very best when somebody says something that you find outrageous and horrifying to not immediately tell them every reason that they're wrong, but to ask this question, what do you mean by that? And get them talking about their beliefs so that they can hear themselves share it. I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm going to tell you right now, if you do some of the things I do right here, I don't even have to argue my case most of the time. They hear how wrong they are as it's coming out of their mouth. And when this particular question, I ask myself this question, if I want to determine whether they have assumed that the unborn are not human and that's why they're arguing what they're arguing, would they make the same argument if we were talking about a two-year-old child? Would they justify killing a two-year-old for this argument? You hear these kind of arguments all the time. I heard a pastor at a Southern Baptist church Selby and he and I were talking. He said, Jay, if we let them have all of their children, if we make abortion illegal, what are we going to do with all these poor people? Yes. And so now, but inside you get angry. You hear something like that and it gets you angry. But here's the problem. He doesn't realize the mistake he's making. And so I have to help him to see why his thinking is flawed. And so I told him, Pastor, I've been poor in my life. I understand what poor does to people and the way it restricts your decisions. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to give you a tool that we call trot out the toddler. I put my hand at my hip. I said, Pastor, I want you to imagine I have a two-year-old little girl standing next to me. This two-year-old little girl is the fourth of four kids. There's no doubt that since she's been born, her family has a greater financial strain on it. There's no doubt that she's been, her father has had to take another job. 
None of the siblings see their parents as much. They're living paycheck to paycheck. This is a family at risk. Would it be okay with you, pastor, if I killed this two-year-old little girl in order to relieve this family of the financial pressure they're under? What do you guys think he said? No, of course not. Immediately he said, no. And again, ask questions. So I asked him this, why? Why is that wrong? And he said, well, you can't do that. So why can't you do that? It would help the family. They're in financial situation that is risky. They're at risk all the time. It will help them. And he said, that doesn't matter. So why doesn't it matter? And he said, well, because you cannot kill human beings because they're expensive. I agree with you. So if the unborn are human in the same way this two-year-old little girl is, then we can't kill them because they're expensive either. We both understand the threat that poverty holds on other people, but we also recognize that there are limits to how we deal with it morally. We don't kill human beings because they're expensive. We find other ways to help them. So if the unborn are like them, we don't kill them either. So the question is, what are they? I had a guy in California stand up while I was talking, and he said, Mr. Watts, I was a faculty member at a school I was speaking at, and he said, Mr. Watts, if we, uh, if we have to keep abortion legal to protect the privacy rights of women. He said, women have a right to privacy. By the way, that's what Roe v. Wade says. Women have a right to make private medical decisions without the interference of the state or the community. And I said, great, I'm a private guy. It might be hard for you guys to believe this because I'm a speaker for a living, but I'm a deeply introverted guy. I want to be left alone. I'm quite sure I told Paul that several times. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, Pastor Paul. No, I'm a deeply introverted fellow. When, when I'm not on the road speaking, I just want to read my books and sit at home. My kids know this. My, well, I got home one time from a long trip, and my daughter said, hey, Dad, we're going to church. There's a function tonight. And I said, I'm going to probably stay home. And she's like, you don't, you don't want to go? There's going to be people, and there are going to be festival things, and all these booths out. And my son looked at her, and he said, do you know Dad at all? All he wants to do is sit there and read and be left alone. You're just describing a nightmare for him. So I'm a deeply introverted fellow when I am not doing my thing on the road. So I told that guy, look, I value privacy as well as you do. But I asked that question. If we were talking about a two-year-old, would he say it's okay to kill them? And so I asked him this question. I said, but sir, I have a two-year-old little girl standing next to me. Imagine who she's standing here. She's my next-door neighbor. Every night in the privacy of her own home, she's viciously abused. Her father has turned her life into one horrifying abusive episode after another in the privacy of their own home. Would it be okay with you if we violated the privacy of that family, went into that house, and took her out to protect her from that abuse? And what do you think he said? Of course. And so I asked the question, why? And he said, well, they can't do that. I said, it's a private matter. What business is it of yours? He said, well, that's not fair. And I said, why isn't that fair? And he said, well, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. I said, it's private in their home, and it's not happening in your life. Why do you have the right to go in there? And he said, well, privacy is not a justification for abusing other human beings. I said, I agree with you. So if the unborn are human in the same way that, that this little girl is right here, then as valuable as we both think privacy is, we both recognize it has legitimate limits. And that limit is we cannot use it as an excuse to hurt others. So the question is, what are they? I'm going to argue that they are like us. You're going to have to argue that they're not. You're going to have to demonstrate that we're allowed to do to them what we're doing to them. You don't get to assume it. No one gets to assume we're right. Everyone has to argue. I got mine. You make your arguments, and we'll see who wins. 
That's one mistake we make. Another mistake, and this is something that is very important for you to understand. You live in a culture where your kids grow up indoctrinated into relativism, into this idea of, of whether it's how personally you feel about something that determines the right or wrong of it. And it's so pervasive that they don't even realize it's going. I was just speaking at a school in Alabama last week, and after talking for several minutes about this very thing, I asked somebody, or a teacher asked one of the other students, so what do you think about abortion? And this young man, about 17 years old, and a very bright fellow said, I feel it's wrong. No, no, no. It doesn't matter what you feel when we're talking about moral things. You have made a confusion when we're talking about things, most of our people in our culture will take a preference claim and then they take objective moral claims and they drop them into the realm of preference claim. I tell people, here's a, here's a, a preference claim. I love Coca-Cola. I have one in the car that I picked up on Quick Trip on the way down here. Uh, I have to travel around the country and there are regions where Coke is harder to get, where they have that disgusting, filthy, swill Pepsi. And I argue all of the time that this ungodly, toxic mixture should never be sold anywhere, but you ought to at least have some coke for people like me and like what do i care what you drink you go away tomorrow i live here forever uh, and so there we have a difference of opinion it's a question of preferences they like that filth i like coke those are two totally different but i can't say you're wrong because it doesn't apply here that's a question of what they like. I like green apples. My daughter likes red, you know, disgusting, squishy apples. Uh, I like Reese's peanut butter cups. I like Cherry Garcia. I don't know what trash ice cream the rest of you people eat. You know, that's, it's all a matter of preference. But when we talk about objective moral claims, that's not a preference claim. When I, I, I see audiences, this is something that I, I don't know if all audiences figure it out. I see every single person in the audience when I'm talking, which means if you're sleeping, I see you. Uh, in almost every talk I've ever given, somebody's sleeping. Uh, uh, if you're on your phone, I see the little blue light on your face. I see all of it. And what I really love to see, and this might be surprising to you because I'm not terribly confrontational, I love hatred. I see hatred. Uh, a friend of mine and I were talking about it, and like we're like Sith lords. We, we feed off of hatred. We're up there talking, and I, I scan the audience, especially, I, I can speak in front of an audience of about 1,500 people, or about 98% of the people disagree with what I'm saying, and a good portion of them hate me, and I'm trying to find the one who hates me the most as I scan through the audience, and when I find, it's usually a her, and when I find her, I make sure to check in with her on the eye contact while I'm talking, just to feed her a little bit, because of this reason. At the end of my talks, at every talk that I give, I put a microphone up front, or they have a mic passed out, and you have the chance to challenge me, to take me on everywhere. I hate going places where people don't have a chance to take me on. I want them to know that I'm ready. And so I feed it just to, so because I know she's coming. The more I look at her, I know when that mic opens, she is running down the aisle. And there was a young lady in San Francisco that hated me more than any human being has ever hated me in my life. And that's saying something because if you hang out with me a while, you'll find out there's a lot not to like. And so I'm, I'm just feeding her over and over again as I'm talking and she finally runs down that aisle and comes up and I'm pumped about it it's like what is she going to say and she walks right up and she says Mr. Watts if you don't like abortion then don't have anything to do with it but leave it alone for the rest of us and I was so crushingly disappointed at such a weak argument it's like all of that hatred and that's the best you got I never said I don't like it I said it's wrong and that's a moral statement I don't like Pepsi. I don't like red apples. I'm saying abortion is objectively wrong for all people at all times. See, had I said, 
rape is wrong. And someone responded, if you don't like rape, then don't do it, but leave it alone for the rest of us. That young lady would immediately understand that, that something was misunderstood or lost in translation. You don't get to pick to like rape. You don't get to choose to like that. You don't get to choose to like child abuse. These aren't things that you get to prefer. They're wrong for all people at all times, in all cultures, everywhere. And when I say abortion is wrong, I'm making that kind of claim. And I hear Christians, this young man chased me down in Indiana as I was leaving a school, and he said, I agree with everything that you said, but I am personally pro-life. I consider myself politically and publicly pro-choice. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you call yourself pro-life, personally? And he said, I agree with your whole talk. I think that abortion kills a human being. He actually said, I think it kills babies. I said, okay. Why do you call yourself politically pro-choice then? And he said, well, I don't think I have the right to tell other people what to do. Now, I told you first, we ask questions. That's your first goal. Your second thing is to learn the art of narrating conversations. What I mean by narrating a conversation is when we reach a certain place in a conversation, we say... Can I go back over what's been said so far to make sure that I accurately understand what you're saying? And so he said that to me, and I looked at him and I said, can I just go over what you just said to me to make sure it accurately reflects what you've said? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, you just told me that you identify yourself as personally pro-life because you think abortion kills babies, but you're politically pro-choice because you don't think you should be allowed to tell other people to not kill babies. And he sat there for a second, and I said, does that reflect what you just said to me? And he said, you know what? It does. But it sounds horrible when you say it that way. He said, of course it does. You made a mistake. This isn't preference. It's moral. It doesn't matter how we feel. It's what are they. And if they're human like you and I, and we have basic duty and obligations to them, then we don't get to kill them because they're inconvenient. No more than we would anyone else. And you tried to make it a question of personal preference, and that's not the kind of issue it is. Get it out of there and get it where it belongs. It belongs in the same category as rape, child abuse, and murder. If it's wrong, it's wrong for all people at all times, everywhere, and you don't get to choose it. So correcting those two things. Now, I want to make a case quickly. Now, I say quickly. You guys think, how could that possibly be? We've already gone so long. But let me, let me give you a warning. I was asked to speak at Auckland University in New Zealand, and they said, would you be willing to lecture for seven hours? Uh, and, and I did. No, we took breaks. I know that sounds outrageous. I was so tired of hearing myself talk. The most amazing thing was that at the end of it, we had like breaks at every hour and then like a lunch break in the middle. They all stayed. They had this room full of people that stayed to hear me talk for seven hours. So you are graciously going to get a much shorter talk than that, I promise you, because I got other places I got to go as well. So... Here is a quick case for life. The question is, what are the unborn? I answer using science and philosophy. Now, I'm deeply and unapologetically Christian. Well, every scripture that's been put up here is meaningful to me in my life. So why don't I argue that way? I was asked to speak at Harvard by five groups, brought me in to speak to Harvard as students and, and faculty at Harvard. And so we had Harvard Hall was full. Uh, and that's not a huge hall, so don't think that's that big a deal. <laughs> I mean, it was about 150 people packed into Harvard Hall. And so we're, we're there for the talk. And I give it, and so why don't I first go to Jeremiah? Why don't I go to Psalm 139? Why don't I go to Luke and talk about Mary and Elizabeth meeting? Why isn't that where I go when I, when I went there? Yeah, they don't believe it, right? I, I'm having to look for common ground. If I start there, 
then what's going to happen is they're going to immediately dismiss it as a religious belief and they're going to drop it back into the realm of preference. Well, if you prefer to be Christian, that's your business. Now, here's one of the things we talk about in evangelism. We talk about pro-life arguments are gateway drugs because you can't start talking about things like human life matters and there's things that we shouldn't do without it raising a whole host of other questions about the human experience. And it is my experience that the more we talk about these things artfully, the more it leads people to the cross and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've seen it happen over and over again where I have talked for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours about the value of human life. And the first question I get is, why are you a Christian? By atheists who want to know, I don't understand why you're a Christian. You're not like the other Christians I've met. You seem to be interested in rational discussion. Some of them just don't feel that way. So here's why I make that case. I make it scientifically and philosophically so that we have common ground so that we can get somewhere because I want to impact the person I'm talking to. Now, why two different things? Because one, there was a question up there, when does life begin? When does human life begin? Human life begins at the moment of conception. That's a, mom that's a scientific explanation. I actually like the term fertilization because scientists have monkeyed around, some doctors have monkeyed around about what they mean by conception, and there's some ambiguity there. They'll say it's when you implant or things like that. When we say fertilization, at the end of the fertilization problem, pro or process problem, at the end of the fertilization process, the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings distinct living and whole human beings from the moment the fertilization process is done. If I repeat something more than once, it means I think it's important. Distinct, living, and whole. They are distinct in that they're unlike any cell in the body of their mother and their father. They are living in that they have every criteria necessary to be considered a living organism. They respond to stimuli. They have cellular reproduction. They have metabolism. As a matter of fact, there are things like viruses that you can hear people have long arguments about whether or not they're considered living organisms that meet far fewer the criteria. They meet every single criteria necessary to be considered living, and they're whole. They're not a part of anything else. Some people find this confusing, but let me help you to understand it. Your skin cells are a living cell with a full complement of genetic material in them, but they serve you as a whole organism. They're a part of you, and they have a role to play in you as an organism. From the moment they come into existence, they serve no one but themselves. In the sense that the first thing that happens is a thing called the zona pellucida, which is a glycoprotein shell hardens to prevent anything else from getting in, and it closes out the rest of the world, including the mom, for about 11 to 12 days while it goes through that early fragile part of its beginning part of its life. The very first thing that it does is shut itself off so it can begin developing at that very early stage without interference from the rest of the world. It's acting as a whole. An organism, independent, whole, distinct, and living from the moment it comes into existence. I got a couple of quotes here because there is nobody that argues against what I just said from the pro-choice side. Not the, not the sophisticated people. Now, you may meet somebody at McDonald's or something and get into argument about them and they'll start telling you. But I'm telling you, every pro-choice philosopher, every pro-choice scientist that works in embryology, everybody that I know, lawyers, all of them are arguing exactly what I just said is true. Here's a quote from Peter Singer, one of the most famous pro-choice ethicists on the planet. It is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to a member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes and the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of an existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. Dr. Michelin Matthews Roth from Harvard Medical School giving a testimony at the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee back in 1981 said, 
There is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception when egg and sperm join to form the zygote. And this developing human always is a member of our species in all stages of its life. I used to carry 10 pages of excerpts like that so that I could show people after I was done. Everyone says what I just said. It's so easy to understand that several years ago, right now, I have a 14-year-old, 13-year-old, and a 9-year-old, which I think was funny that the question is, are they ready to have to be parents? I'm like, who's ready to be parents? I have a 14, 9, and a, a 13, not 14, 13, and 9-year-old. I'm still not ready. You know, it still freaks me out every time I realize there's little people living in my house. Uh, so, but, but when they were 10, 8, and 4, we were sitting around the table eating dinner. My son's the oldest, and my 10-year-old son at the middle of dinner says, hey, mom, did you know then in the female's body, there's some cell called an egg. And in the woman, in the man's body, there's a cell called a sperm. And he said, and when those two things get together, and he starts to do his fingers like that, which, you know, while you're sitting at the table, like, what happens when his fingers touch? He's like, when those two things come together, he said, that's when human life begins. And my wife shoots me a look like this is somehow my fault. Like, I, I have no idea why this kid is talking about this right now. I have the slightest idea where it came from. And so she says, yes, Peyton, I did know that. But how do you know that? And he said, well, I was in daddy's study area. And there, was this, there was this book on the shelf called an anatomy book. And so I opened it up and started flipping through it. And he said, I read that. Uh, and my wife is staring at me. And then he says this. So he says, apparently, though, it only happens like once a month or something. Uh, so I don't want you guys to worry about it. It's not going to happen all the time. We're like, whoo, thanks, buddy. Really, really appreciate that. So my 10-year-old son knows what everybody else knows. Human life begins at that moment. So what's the question? If we all agree that human life begins, what are we arguing about? Do they matter? Do they have value? And that's not scientific. Science, science can't tell us whether things have value or not. Science can tell us what's there, but it can't say whether we ought to treat it a certain way. Ought is a moral word, a philosophical word. And so our arguments have got to shift now from science to philosophy. One of the things that I do when I'm on campus and I'm talking to people is I, I, after doing some of the background stuff that we've done there, I will ask a young man usually to stand up. And the young man, will, I'll, usually I'll be having a conversation with him. He'll be radically pro-choice, somebody that's arguing with me. I've got to get past our differences and find out where we agree. And so this is where I ask what's called a diagnostic question. You right there in the Nike Swish in the blue sweater, would you stand up for me? What's your name, sir? Dylan. All right, Dylan. Even though you're wearing a gator shirt, which hurts me to my very core as a Georgia fan, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you a question I want you to answer for me, all right? Would you be willing to do this? All right, Dylan, thank you. Would it be objectively wrong for me to kill you right now? Yes, yes. That's all I need you for. Thank you, Dylan. I appreciate that. All right. All right. So Dylan just said yes. And he said, by the way, Dylan, you said it very quickly compared to some students that I ask. They're like, it's a trick question. They sit there and think about it for a minute. I'm like, yes, it would be wrong for me to kill you. Uh, so that means that Dylan and I agree about an awful lot. Even if Dylan is a, is a radical pro-choice guy, we have a lot of agreement. We both think that it's wrong to kill other human beings. We both think that it would not just... I said objectively wrong. So it's not just a case that Dylan really wants to live, because then we might have to have an argument, but, but Dylan, I really want you dead. And so we just have a difference of opinion here. It would be wrong no matter how I feel towards Dylan, or no matter how Dylan feels towards me, or the fact that we don't know each other or anything like that. It's objectively wrong, and he and I agree about that. So the question is, the next question, you don't have to answer this, Dylan, I ask this question, what changed? 
what changed from the fetus or embryo that you once were to the young man that's standing in front of me now that if I killed you now, it would be the worst thing that I could do to another human being. But if I killed you then, it was nothing in your mind. There was literally nothing I could do wrong to you as a fetus or an embryo. Tear you to pieces in the most vile and disgusting way, and you think it ought to be completely protected and constitutionally legal. But if I did the exact same thing to you one second after something changes about you, whatever it is you think that turns them into something valuable, it goes from being nothing to the worst thing that I could ever do. What was the change? What, what accounts for that philosophical change of state? Because that's big. It's a big thing to go from being something that has no value to something that being has eternal or great value. It's a big thing to be in the kind of thing that killing you is like having a tooth extracted and then killing you the very next moment is life in prison. That is a massive change of state. What changed? And they tell you differences of size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency. That's what we call the SLED acronym. And we argue that size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency do not do the philosophical work necessary to explain that change from no value to all value. You see, size, how well developed you are, where you are, degree of dependency, those are things that all change. As I get older, my size changes constantly. Uh, my family forced me to go on a cruise earlier this year, and no matter what I did to exercise, my size grew. Uh, but you don't look at somebody who's large, hopefully you don't look at a large person in public, like a very large man, and say, wow, look how big that guy is. It'd be very wrong to kill him. He has so much value. He's huge. Just like I hope you don't look at people who are very small. Look how small they are. That's so sad. They have so little value. Because we understand that value is something that all human beings share equally. And in order to ground it, we have to ground it in something that we have and share equally. And the only thing that we share equally is our identity as human beings. We're all human in the same way. Look around this room. There's nobody like you in this room, except one thing. We're all commonly human. We share our humanity. And so we ground our value, the wrongness in killing you, in that. That is where it gets wrong. It's about Christopher Kayser who says that all throughout human history, we have tried to draw a line through humanity and say we can treat those people one way because they're not persons like me. And on this side, we have to protect them and cherish them and keep them safe. He said all the people we have put on the other side, every time we say they're not persons, we do horrible things to them. All throughout human history, we've done this. We've enslaved them, killed them, taken their land, fought them. We've never identified them as not persons because we wish to treat them well. And we said every single time we've done this throughout human history, we've recognized that we're wrong. What are the chances that for the first time we're right? What are the chances we finally found a group of people that were justified in treating the way that we are? Now, I said that we're going to argue using science for philosophy, and the last thing I wanted to do was to argue well. I want to argue well because I'm trying to make a case that this is something that we ought to do, and we ought to do it as Christians. Our duty and responsibility is to equip ourselves to have this conversation. We must. Because if they're human, and here's how I came to it. I was an atheist who ultimately became a Christian. And then I was a Christian who the very first prayer I ever said to God was, I don't know what you want from me. After I became a Christian, I'll do anything that you want. I want to learn what it means to this new life. But if you could do me one favor... If I could go the rest of my life without ever having to talk about abortion again, that would be great. Because it's an awful subject that makes people into the worst versions of themselves. 
and I hate it. And I hear this from people all over the country, Mr. Watts, I hate talking about this because even with family members whom I love, it gets ugly and divisive and terrible. And so I am driven by the belief that we must engage. How I got there was I was, I was working as an HVAC salesperson in commercial applications and, and I, was, I was making good money and I was miserable doing it. And I knew something was wrong and I should be doing something else. And I tried to find something in ministry and I went and talked to my, Brian, my pastor, Bryant Wright, at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. And I said, I feel like I'm supposed to be working in ministry. I want to spend the rest of my days talking about God. And he, and he started to list all these jobs in ministry that I could do. And I said, no, none of those sound right. I have no interest in any of that. And he said, so you think God has called you to ministry, but you don't want to do ministry. And I was like, well, if that's what ministry is, then I don't want to do it. And he said, so here's what we need to do. He said, I'm going to give you a room in our church every Wednesday night for the next few weeks, and I want you to just teach what's on your heart. And let's see if we can figure out what you want to do. So, okay, well, give me time to study. And he said, all right. So the plan that I came up with was I was going to do um, four weeks, five weeks actually total. And what, as a new Christian, relatively new, or somebody who didn't grow up in the church, I'm constantly amazed at how, and I genuinely believe this, the church is afraid to talk about sensitive things. You guys are so afraid to offend the people in your pews that you won't talk about what's going on in the world around you. Not necessarily here, but in general throughout the church. And it amazes me because by the time we work up the courage to talk about things, it's too late. We were too afraid to offend people right from the beginning, and because we did that, we allowed things to go way down the road to a place where we couldn't have any impact on it at all. As a matter of fact, I've heard atheist philosophers say this. When we're talking about advances in genetic research right now, they said, you people need to get ahead of this and start arguing about it now, because we're going to do it the second we can. And as soon as we can do it, you better be prepared. To, it's going to be too late for you to argue. You're going to want to step up and say you shouldn't do this. Like, we're past that, man. We're moving down the road to something else. And so I was like, okay, let's get scriptural data on what God means about things like violence and how we treat human beings and sexuality and idolatry, and let's see if we can get some sense of, of why, where we're not meeting up to those expectations. And I studied violence for months and months, and I studied genocide, and I studied just common garden variety abuse of violence towards the homeless in the United States, and all of these different areas, chattel slavery here in the United States. I studied Soviet Stalinist and Soviet Union. I studied Pol Pot's uh, communist uh, uh, um, Cambodia. I studied all of these things. My wife will tell you that during these three months, I was a lovely human being at that dinner table because I'm just constantly dwelling into the worst of human beings. But here's a constant refrain that came up during all that study. What would I do if I were there? By the way, there were Christians in Nazi Germany. There were Christians in Stalinistic Soviet Union. There were Christians in Rwanda during the, the, the slaughter of the Tutsis at the hands of the Hutus. Every, there, were, there were Christians here in Georgia, in my home, that were using the Bible to defend slavery during the Civil War. Everywhere you see injustice, there are Christians right there. And the overwhelming majority of them did nothing but lay low until it passed over. There were heroes, there were people that did do something, but the majority of them did nothing. And so I read these over and over again, and I finally ask this question, what would I do? And then I began to study about life. And I started to see what was going on in the world around me. And after months and months of asking that question, I, I came to the, pl the place where I said, if the unborn are fully human, then I live in a time of terrible evil. And I'm doing nothing. I'm doing nothing in the face of it. I am living in exactly the kind of times that I've seen. And so I, I vowed to myself to change that. And the way that I changed it was a friend of mine said, you feel all this passion, go to the local pregnancy center. Go to the local pregnancy center and see if you can get involved. Just try to change the world at a local level. And everything that I've gotten to do started at that moment when I walked into that door. 
Everything that I've gotten to do in my life, traveling around the world talking about this, began when I walked into the door and talked to my dear, good friend, Lori Parker, and I said, I just am here to help and volunteer. An hour later, she offered me a job. A week later, I accepted it. Three years later, I went on to LTI, and now it's my entire job to travel around the world doing this, all because we have to answer the question, what are they? And if they are human, and all the best arguments say that they are, there's a good that we ought to do. And I'm telling you, no matter what else you do with your time, if you can't find some meaningful way to engage this, even if it just means volunteering and being there in this place where God is using the people in your community to meet people in the worst part of their life, this time of fear with love and grace and mercy and support, if, if that's what you do, it's a meaningful way to connect. But you have to find some way. Because to not do it in the face of what's going around us is a sin of omission. To know that the good that we ought to do and to not do it is to sin. Let me bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time and I appreciate the opportunity. And I pray, God, that you bless us all with a heart to serve you, to settle the question, what are they? And if we believe that they are human beings, to recognize that we have a duty and responsibility to fulfill our, your desire for us to serve the widows and orphans, as you say in James 1.27, to go out among them and to serve those who cannot help themselves to show you that we understand the calling and grace of mercy to help the helpless. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.